Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. Well, good morning, everyone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. We have seen and read the story of Joseph for uh, several months now, taking it uh, verse by verse, going through an amazing event that took place in the Old Testament, one of my favorite stories. We've seen a young man at the age of 17, uh, hated by his brothers, loved by his father, taken into captivity. Joseph would ride the ups and downs, the roller coaster life really in Egypt, where he got there and he was sent to Potiphar's, Potiphar Bottom, and he became a slave for Potiphar. And he went from the bottom of the pit back up to the highest position in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife decided she wanted him. She wanted to sleep with him, and he refused her, which angered her. And she lied about him, saying that he attempted to rape her. And he got sent off to prison. He's back at the bottom of the pit again. But he hung in there with God. He obeyed God as best he could. And we see him rise back to the top one day when Pharaoh makes him the second most powerful man in all the world. God would send a famine in the land, but Joseph would be prepared for it. And he prepared Egypt for it. And that brought a lot of nations from all over the place to get food there, including uh, the folks, the tribe from Canaan, the Israelites. And they showed up, the brothers that had sent him to Egypt would show up. They didn't recognize him. He recognized them immediately. And they played a game together. They didn't even know they were playing. And uh, eventually Joseph revealed their hearts. And so they have to go home and tell dad the real story. They told dad a wild animal had eaten Joseph. And now they have to come clean with dad. They come back and, and dad settles the tribe of Israel there. But Jacob... <coughs> would come with the tribe, his boys, and they would live there in the land. That was God's provision for the end of his life. He had the first 17 years with Joseph, and he was sold off into slavery. And then he was restored to Joseph for his final 17 years of life before he died. Kind of a beautiful book in in the story. A person's final words are often important and impactful As he laid on his deathbed just minutes from arriving to his eternal home, this pilgrim, as he called himself last week, was prepared to meet his maker. And so he calls his boys together on his deathbed. And he is going to speak very prophetic words over each of these 12 sons in their birth order from first to last. In these words, God assures all of Israel that He does have a future for them and a hope in the land that He's set aside for His people there in Canaan. Not all of Jacob's words were encouraging here. Three of his sons would learn that their past sins and the atrocities that they had committed would cost them their future inheritance in the promised land. But not all of his words were difficult. For in them, the children of Israel, whether whether suffering under the coming Egyptian oppression or wandering in the desert for 40 years, could take solace that one day their coming generations would indeed take possession 
of their God-promised land in Canaan. So sit back and get ready to hear these words spoken by Jacob to each of his 12 sons. Let's begin our reading in Genesis 49, verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Jacob begins now with son number one, Reuben. Verse three, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob minces no words here as he calls out Reuben's grave sin of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, Bilhah. Reuben should have been a man who honored his father, but instead he embarrassed both God himself and his father by committing this terrible, terrible sexual act. Unstable as water, he called him. Calm water is weak, and raging water can be destructive. Reuben's tribe would be both. Scripture only reveals very few honorable men who came through him. Next, we hear about sons number two and number three, Simeon and Levi, and they are spoken of together for a reason. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty or violence are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What he's saying is he could not leave them together as individual tribes. They were too dangerous. While the Israelites were befriended by the Shechemites while grazing their herds in their land, the king of the Shechemites, the son, raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Instead of just holding him responsible, Simeon and Levi took justice in their own hands, and they hatched a plan to murder almost everyone in the entire home of the king. And this angered God greatly. And these two unrepentant men now would pay for these sins that they never repented of. God divided these two volatile tribes, and they would lose their inheritance as distinct families in Israel. Simeon would be dissolved into the tribe of Judah, and Levi was given 48 towns in which they could live, scattered across all of Israel. They would never unite again. Indeed, God did divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel, just as was prophesied. Son number four, Judah, verse eight. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as 
a lion who shall rouse him. Then, of course, the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, would come through this line. Verse 10, the scepter, which is a symbol of kingship, shall not depart from Judah. Why? Because Jesus Christ's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. He's an eternal king, the eternal king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. While Jacob confronted the first three sons with their sins, he remains quiet here when it came to Judah, the son who had suggested that the brothers sell Joseph to the Egyptians. But that's not brought up. Why? Well, it's highly likely that Judah had repented and asked for forgiveness from both his father and Joseph. I believe dad now sees God's hand in Judah's suggestion to sell Joseph to the Egyptians, which caused him to be preserved and to go before them to Egypt, which saved the lives of many, including the Israelites. Sometimes looking back is the best way to see what God is doing. Sometimes we only understand what He's doing in our life or why He's allowed something into our life when we pause to look back over our shoulder and see what has happened. And clearly, God was in Joseph being sent to Egypt. It was Judah who would put his life on the line for Benjamin. It was Judah who stepped forward to argue with Zapnath-Paneah. And it was Judah whom Jacob sent ahead of their people in order to make their living arrangements in Egypt. Dad now trusts Judah. While Judah's life had a few sinful exceptions to it, God judges on the rule of one's life rather than on the exceptions. Judah was nicknamed as the royal tribe, for it provided Israel with most of its kings. Many were godly leaders, such as King David. And of course, the king of kings, Jesus himself, came through this line of Judah. The name Shiloh in verse 10 is a reference to the coming Messiah. Here's what Shiloh literally is defined as, and I quote, until he comes whose right it is to rule. That's what Shiloh means. Well, whose right is it to rule? None but Jesus. He owns it all. He's the King of kings. The name Shiloh in verse 10 means that. The reference to washing the clothes in wine might be better understood as his clothes are awash in wine. Wine was very valuable. Or the times are so good that there's an abundance of prosperity and blessing in Judah's tribe. They would have everything they needed. They would have an abundance. God would bless them tremendously. Son number five, Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. The land of Zebulun was just a little inland from the Mediterranean Sea. And this tribe transported goods from seafaring merchants inland to the other tribes in Galilee and beyond. 
They also were known to be brave and skilled warriors as both Deborah and Barak praised the men of Zebulun for helping to defeat Sisera's evil army. Next, we have son number six, Issachar. Jacob continues on in verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey. What? (laughs) What'd you call me? That's not what Issachar said. That was actually a compliment back in that day. Donkeys were ridden by kings. And so this is actually a blessing to him. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. The tribe of Issachar settled near the northern Jordan River Valley, and David had soldiers from Issachar. Many of these men were valiant in battle. The sons of Issachar were not Bible heroes or famous people that we would know by name in Scripture. However, they as a group were faithful and hardworking. They were farmers and simple people who provided goods for the rest of the tribes. They were known to have a great work ethic and a godly character, and they worked like slaves to provide life's necessities for the rest or the tribes. Next, we see son number seven, Dan. The name means to judge, verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that it is its rider shall fall backward. Sometimes Dan followed God, and sometimes not so much. Out of this tribe came the most well-known judge in all the Bible. Of course, his name is Samson. The land which the tribe occupied was in northern Israel, just south of modern-day Lebanon. And I, I, we have gotten to stand right there where there's an old idolatrous remains. They started out okay, but they would struggle with idolatry to the point where King Jeroboam built an altar there, and, and there's pieces of it that are still there. Dan was removed from the list of tribes in First Chronicles chapters 2-8. through eight. You don't read their tribe. And over in Revelation 7, the same. His tribe is removed. However, in Ezekiel 48, there's hope for them. When the prophet speaks of the future kingdom, Dan is restored and has a place in that coming kingdom of God. Then in the middle of this prophecy, he ends with those words to Dan, and suddenly, Jacob cries out loudly here, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I've read that before, and I didn't understand it and just moved on. But this time, I'm getting to preach this. And so I wanted to find, why would he suddenly blurt that out? And here's what I've come to believe. I believe in the middle of all of this, the Spirit of the Lord is on Jacob, and he's giving the sons this information. And suddenly, Jacob just realizes or senses the presence of the Lord and just cries out to him. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Next, we hear about son number eight, Gad. This name can mean a troop or good fortune. Verse 19, Gad, comma, a troop shall tramp upon him, comma. That's a statement of what will happen to Gad. A troop's going to tramp upon him. But he shall triumph at last. 
Through his father, God was informing Gad that his tribe would be regularly invaded by foreign armies until they would at last experience peace in their land. Gad's tribe is just east of the Jordan River, so it's in the direction of Syria or the Golan Heights in modern times here. And so they took the brunt of foreigners that would come and try to invade their land. And so they would, a troop shall tramp upon them, but he shall triumph at last. And after several wars with these and repelling these, these foreigners, Gad would experience peace. Next is son number nine, Asher. The name means blessed or happy. Verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. I don't know about you, but I I think I want to live next to Asher. uh, Just have access to his bakery. And literally, that's what they did. Clearly, Asher's offspring were not warriors. In fact, they couldn't drive out the inhabitants of their own land, so they just, I think, baked for them. (laughs) Interesting. Asher became an agricultural people, farmers, that could make pastries fit for royalty, and they were called upon regularly by the king. Next, we have son son number 10, Naphtali. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. If you study it a little bit, here's what you find out. Naphtali's area covers the Sea of Galilee and the hills to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And if you've been there, you you can picture the Sea of Galilee. The imagery of them being bouncing deer describes them as free-spirited people. They're free-spirited, not bogged down by rules and regulations. They enjoyed their relationship with God very freely. They were free-spirited. Moses described them as satisfied with God's favor and full of the blessing of the Lord. That's how Moses described them. He also said this, the sentence, he uses beautiful words, probably means they were poets, writers, eloquent at speaking. Next comes number 11, Joseph. Jacob uses the word for blessing six times, you're going to see here in a minute, in this lengthy description of his favorite son's future. Verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. The description of Joseph and the tribe of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, was that of a fruitful vine that flourished and refused to be tamed. You couldn't keep it inside the walls of the garden. It would go out over the walls, and certainly Ephraim's tribe would expand well beyond their borders because God just blessed them beyond description. The archers which shot at him and hated him is a metaphor for his brothers, of course, who attempted to, at first they were going to kill him, and then they decided on selling him into slavery. The arrows are the lies that were told about Joseph during his life. But Joseph, here it says, did not shoot back. He held his bow. He didn't fire it. He kept his cool and he obeyed God even when it was difficult to do so. 
His faith, integrity, and honor grew strong and, dro and drove him on to do great things for the Lord. You'll never read a sentence where Joseph speaks ill of anyone. He never takes revenge on anyone, although you would think he had a right to. No, he held his arm back. And because he did, God strengthened his arms, it says. God strengthened Joseph for what he was about to ask him to do. Joseph needed to be a man of integrity. Joseph needed to be strong for the moment that he would stand up and lead a nation and many nations through a, a very difficult time without food. Verse 24, the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Jacob uses three names for God here. The mighty God who had led him and fed him for 147 years. The name shepherd is, of course, the prophecy of Jesus being the good shepherd that would come one day. And the stone of Israel is the stone that the builders rejected their Messiah, Christ, the cornerstone. Now come the blessings reserved for his favorite son, Joseph. You'll hear the word Verse 25, by the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb. The blessings of your Father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Jacob promises Joseph that his seed will multiply and God will send down blessings on the land, his land, and that his people would be fertile and grow in number and riches. God would send the blessing of rain down on this tribe's land and they would never want for anything they would have much blessing. And then finally, son number 12, Benjamin. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Benjamin means son of my happiness or son of my right hand. Why the description though of ravenous wolf? Why is he a ravenous wolf? Well, the tribe of Benjamin would become skilled warriors and feared in battle. But not all of them were faithful warriors. Saul, the first king of Israel, while he was to be feared, well, he was a ravenous wolf. He even tried to kill the young shepherd boy, David, because he knew he would become king. These declarations made to each of the twelve sons would remain with them forever. And they would pass them down from generation to generation. Each one understanding theirs a little more with the passing of time. And what I see, I envision, is a father sitting around a table and talking to their children and explaining the blessing that great-great-great-grandpa Jacob had given them and what it meant. Verse 28, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. 
And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is, that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. Verse 33, And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into bed, and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And with that, Jacob, his long and difficult life, came to an end. He had crossed over into the Jordan once more, and into the eternal promised land which God has for everyone who's placed their trust and their faith in him. Those who have received his gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ purchased for everyone, for all who would come to Him and receive what Jesus had done. This pilgrim, as he called himself, had made his final journey, and now he was ready to be home at last, home to meet his God, home for the great reunion of saints in heaven, home to join the never-ending choir of worshipers, God's forever family. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.